We're going to jump into the book of Nehemiah this morning. Uh, Nehemiah, as we are going through this survey of Scripture, I have enjoyed the survey of Scripture that I have seen thus far with you guys. And so Nehemiah is going to be another good one. A uh, couple things about the book of Nehemiah to give us some background. Uh, it shows us what happens, as we talked about even last week. This shows us what happened with the third return from captivity back to Jerusalem. So there were three waves of return. First was under Zerubbabel. If you remember Zerubbabel, he was of the line of David. So Zerubbabel was this prince, right, that was um, uh, the next heir to the throne of David's line. And so uh, that was Zerubbabel sent, brought back the first uh, group back to Jerusalem. And he was sent back to rebuild the temple. So he was sent back to do that. The second wave happened 80 years later, 80 years later, um, after, so after Zerubbabel first goes, we see Ezra, Ezra comes, there's 58 years between when, uh, when, when the, the two pieces met, but the whole book of Ezra, the whole time of Ezra was about 80 years. Um, and so there was this time and season where Ezra was a priest, Ezra came in, so first there was this prince that led back this, uh, this great move back to Jerusalem. Then Ezra, the priest, so we see the prince and the priest, we see this king and priest, and how these two point us to Jesus because he's the ultimate high priest, he's the ultimate king. So we see Ezra come back. Then there's a third wave that happens, and it's this guy named Nehemiah. Now there's about 12 years between Ezra and Nehemiah's return. And um, that's important for us to know because it gives us some insight into what Nehemiah is dealing with. So Nehemiah is, uh, you know, we first see this prince, then we see this priest, both of these guys of the line, uh, Zerubbabel of the line of David. We see Ezra of the line, you can trace his line all the way back to Aaron, the very first priest of Israel. Incredible, right? So you see these two guys with these two great pedigrees. Nehemiah shows up and he's unknown. He is, un we don't know, we can't trace Nehemiah back to anybody. Like, it's got, I mean, he's got his, like, a couple of lineage, but it doesn't mean anything to us. This guy is a nobody. I am so thankful God uses nobodies, because otherwise, he's just using princes and priests, and he doesn't use regular people like us. Like, <laughs> the thank you, Lord, for using regular people like us. I love how Nehemiah is this third wave back to Jerusalem, and he is a nobody. Now, we know he has a relative that lives in Jerusalem and has lived there for a season because that relative is the one that got the message back to Nehemiah that the walls of the city are not built. They are in rubble. Now, a couple of things I want you to think about. So, in these three waves of return back to Jerusalem, we first see the temple needed to be rebuilt, and the temple, the worship of God, needed to be back in the city of God. And then we see there's, so there's this, uh, this temple, temple aspect. And when the temple gets built, then there, the city isn't fortified. So the city isn't really a city anymore. By the time the book of Nehemiah ends, spoiler alert, there's a new city. So now, again, if we're, if we're looking at the Bible just in the, in the years that it's written in, then we're missing something because the Bible is timeless, right? It's, it's, it, it all, it's like, it's from the beginning to the end, and we haven't seen the end yet. 
But in the end, there is a, a new temple in heaven. <laughs> in Revelation, it says that there is no temple in heaven. The temple is the Lamb. Like, He is the temple. Just like Jesus said that He was going to tear the temple down and rebuild it. He was talking about Himself. He is the temple. And then we know that's going to be in a new city. Like, let's look at this and see the new temple and the new city that's coming. Like, there is something amazing about the exoduses from Egypt and slavery into freedom of the promised land. Then the captivity and the exodus back. And the exodus back, the purpose was to build, rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. Like, that's what it was for. And there's another, listen, there's another exodus coming. And that other exodus that's coming is to go and see the city that's already been built for us. And the temple that has been rebuilt for us. Like, it's, it's not something we got to go do. It's something the king went and did. And I could go years on that statement alone, but we're going to move on. So here we are in the book of Nehemiah. Now, a couple of things uh, to note. So as we see these three returns, I'm t- as I was telling this pastor friend yesterday about this, he said, you know, there's like 30 sermons in this. I was like, I know. And he said, how can you teach this without jumping into each of these sermons? And I was like, it's the Holy Spirit holding me, like restraining me because this is this one is good. <laughs> this is good. So in these three reforms or these three revivals or these three returns back to Jerusalem, uh, you ha- they had three different reasons for it, right? The first reason under Zerubbabel was a religious reform. Again, it was to build the temple, right? And so it was to put the people of God back to the same, uh, connect them back to the religion of their original faith. Then when Ezra came, he was the priest and the scribe, he showed up uh, for moral reforms. If you remember, the priest, see, see the priest is, is all about the way that you live your life. That's what he's like. So you've got this religious worship piece. Then you've got your moral uh, changing, like clean, cleansing. You know, Ezra came in. He was when they intermarried and he went crazy and was like, how dare you do this? And then the book of Ezra ended with like the sins of the people written down because there was this confession. So then this, uh, this return is a little bit different. So if the first one was for religious reasons, the second was for moral reasons, this one is actually for political reasons. And so there is a lot of politics happening throughout Nehemiah's move. And part of this was to help us see that this is a nation. This is not just a people that have been freed now. This is a nation of God. And this was the time to confirm that this is the reform that needed to happen to bring the nation, uh, to make the nation the nation again. Now, the years between Ezra and Nehemiah uh, were pretty short in these returns. There was only 12 years. But there was a lot that happened in those 12 years. Uh, One of the things that happened was the Persian king had some issues with his governor, and, um, and, and had to kind of concede to some peace offerings that the governor had suggested. This is the first time, in fact, we see the Persian Empire had a couple little kinks. So it was the big empire, okay? So you had Egypt was the big empire. Then you had Babylon. You had Persia. Persia, this was the first moment in these 12 years that we see the Persian Empire is going to end up falling. This was the first moment of weakness that we see. That's a big political thing, right? If you see a world power and you hear of of issues within that world power, it changes politically the the climate, right? So that was one of the things that happened. Um, Another thing that happened, uh, the the, uh, Arabic people uh, that were enemies of the Jews then, 
and, and now, they, uh, they had moved closer to the city of Jerusalem. They moved their camps that were very hostile, very close to the city of Jerusalem. That's a political move, right? It's a world power. It's, it's the enemy of Israel, and they are moving closer to Israel's center. That's a political issue. So these things were going on, uh, and, and the people of Israel, wouldn't you know it, they took foreign wives again, and they, they slipped away. The Sabbath was neglected again. All that stuff is happening in these 12 years. I hate to see that revival um, ends. I hate to see that. I hate, I hate it. I hate it so bad. But I've learned the truth is revival ends because the people of God become like the world again. That's what happens. So these, these happen. Uh, the people, so, so be thinking about this as we look through this book. We're going to look through just each chapter by chapter. Um, I think it'll be shorter today. Probably won't be more than 50 minutes, maybe, um, as we jump in. Uh, but so imagine this. The history says then, so if the people, if the first remnant came back uh, during Zerubbabel's time, by this point, by the time uh, Nehemiah shows up, they had been back 80 years, then Ezra, and then there was 12 years until Nehemiah. So they've been back 92 years, okay? 92 years. That's a long time. 92 years is a long time. So the pioneers that made the journey, they're, they're dead and gone. The next generation was taking up some leadership. Even their kids now are rising up into leadership. And so Nehemiah is seeing this, uh, this third generation of, of believers and of God's people rise up into power, into authority. And so, um, uh, again, the Sabbath had been neglected. Conditions were not good by the time Nehemiah got there. So I want to look at this book in Nehemiah in, in just chapter by chapter, but three specific big chunks. The first chunk I'm going to call new construction. That's chapters one through six. The second chunk is new consecration. That's uh, verse, chapters seven through ten. And then the last, there's a new charge. And so as I look at these, they all start with letter C, so they're all sermons, and you can go preach them if you want. Uh, they're, they're yours to, to use. Um, so the first section is about the new construction. So as we look at this, chapter 1, what we see that happens, Nehemiah's relative comes to him and says, the walls of Jerusalem are in disarray. And so he hears, this is the report that's coming from Jerusalem. So what happens? There's two options that Nehemiah has. Nehemiah can jump in and say, I'm going to go fix these, or he can sit back and pray and wait on the Lord. Nehemiah does the right thing. He has what's, a, what's known as a spiritual move. He says, I'm going to pray and fast and listen to the Lord. So this, this news from the state of, of, the Jerusalem, of Jerusalem comes, and Nehemiah does what he should do. He prays and fasts. That's what chapter 1 is. Chapter 2 um, is he there's an opportunity that comes up. So at the very first part of chapter 2, it says, in the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. Um, so it says specifically when that month is, right? The month of Nisan. Now, if you look back in chapter 1, it says it happened in the month of uh, uh, Chilez, uh, uh, Chislev. And so of that month, so from the month of Chislev to the month of Nisan, all Nehemiah has been doing is praying and fasting. That's four months on the Hebrew calendar. So I want you to think about this. Nehemiah hears this devastating news. So he begins praying and fasting for four months. He does not take any action other than prayer and fasting for four months. 
He knows the walls are in disarray. He knows there's a problem. But he is seeking after the Lord. I'm, if you were to do anything for four straight months, if you were to pray every day, fast every day for four months. Now, he had to eat certain meals because you can't, you can't go without food for four months. But as he was taking moments and times and specific physical moments to say, I am going to fast this meal today. I'm going to fast this week, this month. I'm going to fast this and, and continue for four months. Four months. I, I just want to say the faithfulness to, to, to do that is, is already something that we've got to be able to grasp. Like we need to know this guy did nothing but pray and fast for four months. Now, he, he's an important guy. He's a cupbearer to the king. Now, if you know much about a cupbearer, uh, they're typically very um, uh, attractive, uh, easily to follow, uh, well-spoken, uh, brave men. That's typically the cupbearers to the king. And they would have very close proximity to the king. Now, their job was to take whatever the king was about to drink, sip it, and then that way he would know if it's poisoned or not. Now, this is a brave job because if he, and, if, and as long as Nehemiah took a sip, hung out there for a few minutes, nothing happened to him, the, cup, the, the king would then drink the cup and say, okay, it's not, you didn't die, so I can drink it. Now, I don't want that job. I, I don't. I, could just, I just don't. Because at any, I, I mean, think, any sip could be it. Like, if, if it was a job, that means it was an issue, Right? It's, it's like when we read um, uh, instructions on the back of a, of, a, of a bottle of something. The reason the cautions are on there is because there was an issue, right? And so it's like, do not drink shampoo. That means someplace, somewhere, somebody drank shampoo. Like, that's what that means. And so it's like, you know, if you do this, this is bad. Like, so if this is a job, it was an issue, so kings had been poisoned a lot by drink. So what did they do? They said, we'll make a job where somebody tests this. Now, if most of the time, the cupbearer was so likable, even if somebody wanted to kill the king, they knew the cupbearer so they wouldn't poison the drink because they liked the cupbearer that much. So guess what? The king is going to bring the most likable guy to be his cupbearer. Like, that's what you're going to do. And so uh, this was Nehemiah's job. So he was an influential guy. A lot, everybody liked Nehemiah. So in chapter two, what we see happen is he's in, in the front of the king and he's got a sad face. Now the sad face is really, we don't, it's not even that he's fasting and he looks like he's hungry. It's that he's broken hearted. And so that broken heartedness, his spirit is down because of this. So the king says, hey, what's going on? And he says, my people are, um, are, are hurting because the walls of my place are, are destroyed um, and, and it breaks my heart. This shouldn't be this way. So he gets sent to, uh, to check out the walls of Jerusalem. So whenever he gets there in chapter 2, what we see that happens in verse 18, I love the charge uh, from Nehemiah in 2.18. It says, and I told them... Of the hand of my God, this is the people in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, he says, that, uh, that had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened with their hands for the good work. So here's what happened. Nehemiah gets out there, and he just starts talking about, there is, there is a need here. Nehemiah doesn't say, we need to build. 
The people say we need to build. They say, let us rise up and build. So then what happens in verse number 19? Listen to what the world does. When Sanballat, the, the, the um, Horonite, and, uh, and Tobiah, the Amorite, said uh, the Ammonite servant and, and Geshem of Arab heard it, they jeered and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? What it means by jeered is they, they laughed uncontrollably. So whenever the people of God said, we're going to rebuild the walls, the world went, <laughs> you got to be kidding. There's no, that task, there's no way. Like, it's not even possible. You've got to be joking. And then they're like, and... The king won't even let you do that. Are you rebelling against the king? So as soon as you say yes to the Lord, I promise you this, the, the world is going to laugh at you. I, whenever um, uh, I had told, I told a couple people before I came to New Providence that I, was, uh, that I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. They laughed at me. They were like, yeah, right. We know God's called you there. And I'm like, well, pff, he hadn't told me yet. I laughed at them, right? Like I was like, oh, okay, that's not happening. And then the Lord called me to it. And once I did it, then guess what? They laughed at me. They were like, <laughs> good luck. And that's what they said. And then they, they went off and said they, they pray for me. Um, but as, I, as you think about it, if you are obedient to the Lord, the, the world's not supposed to understand it. They're not supposed to. They don't understand why this process happened this way. Well, it's because faith said this, and faith said yes to the Lord, and the Lord already wrote it down a millennium ago. Like, it's not like this was the Lord, like, oh, I like the way this story's going, let's go here. God already knew, like, he's already in control. He's holy, he's perfect, he's pure. Whenever we do something in line with God, it's we're agreeing that God already knows what he's doing, and the world doesn't understand it. So we see, uh, after, after this, um, uh, carry, so, so literally, in chapter 2, what we see is Nehemiah says, I'm going to leave a job carrying a cup to the king, and I'm going to go start carrying bricks. That's what Nehemiah does in chapter 2. Then chapter 3, the rebuilding begins. Uh, in uh, Nehemiah, I love Nehemiah for the fact that he is very organized. He has, get this, he has 42 working crews for the wall, 42. And each crew had a section they had to build. Each section was even close to where that crew lived. Nehemiah was very organized. Now, this is why I, I love Nehemiah, um, and I, I prayed a long time ago that the Lord would give me the skills and the leadership prowess of Nehemiah, because I love how it makes sense and it's ordered, right? And he says, if we have 42 sections of the wall, that's great. We'll, we'll make 42 crews. Where are we going to put these 42 crews? Well, they live, you know, crew A lives over here, so crew A is going to work on the wall close to them. Crew Z over here lives close to this part of the wall, so they're going to work over here. And we're going to organize this where every crew has a short commute so they can do more work, so they can work a little bit longer every day, so that they don't have to travel very far. So here's what we're going to do. Um, he was so passionate. The reason he did this, the reason he organized this in chapter 3, what we see is Nehemiah said this, The world laughed at me, and they don't want it to happen. So I'm going to be so organized and so streamlined, the enemy doesn't have time to attack us before we're done. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He says, if the enemy wants to come up against me, he's got to be way faster than he is. Because I'm going to, we're going to make sure every single I is dotted and every T is crossed, and we're going to build this wall. So chapter 3, we see what happens, and what happens? 52 days the wall is built. 
<laughs> Unthinkable task, 52 days. Give me seven weeks. That's what Nehemiah said. Seven weeks. Rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem without bulldozers, right? Without machinery. Like he just said, I need 42 crews. We got 42 sections. We got 52 days. Let's go. And they worked until it was done. So think about this. Six months, he received an order to go to Jerusalem. And six months later, the, walls, the, the task is completely finished. Completely finished. In si within six months, you can go to Jerusalem. Six months later, everything he had been sent to do was done. Like, that's how quickly, because he was systematic and he was organized and he had a plan. So then chapter 4, we, it kind of gives us a little bit of, now, the, the wall doesn't get, quote, finished for a couple of chapters, but I wanted to give you kind of the overview there. But in chapter 4, we see there's opposition to the build. So in this opposition to the build, uh, there is a few things that happen. Now this one uh, is by far, if you were to ask me, I, I, I've, I've taught at leadership seminars, and I will teach Nehemiah 4. Because it is a, a leadership strategy that I love. When I was in high school, I read this little bitty uh, 100 Days of Manly Devotions or something. something. Something, you know, 100 Devotions for Leader Men, you know, something. I was, I was 16 or 17 years old. I remember, and there was just this one verse out of Nehemiah 4. And this one verse had this thought behind it. it was, I mean, it was a little bitty book, a little bitty. And... I remember after I read that, I thought, I want to go read this whole chapter because this, is, this could be really good and I could really gain something from here. And so I went and read it. And there, there's a thing out of chapter four that I love. Operation, uh, opposition, opposition arises. So Nehemiah sets up brilliantly in chapter, in verses 13 and 14. This is what it says in Nehemiah 4, verses 13 and 14, because uh, opposition's coming up against them, and it's fighting and all this. So Nehemiah says, okay, we're going to strategize even more. So verse 13, it says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You see, what Nehemiah did was he said, there's a fight coming. So he takes these working crews and he says, I want you to fight. Now his working crews were built up of families because here's what Nehemiah understood. You, you put, um, you, you, you go to attack my daughter and you see what happens to you. Because dad, you're going to get 180 pounds of white boy all over you, right? That's what's going to happen. Like you, you, and you ain't going to be able to handle it. You can bring an army up against my little girl and dad's going to show up and, and I'm giving it my all because you ain't messing with my little girl. So Nehemiah says he knows the passion of fathers and grandfathers and uncles and aunts, mama bears. Can you imagine you come after my daughter? If you can get through me, 
then mama bear's right behind me and you are not getting through her because you're going to be so mauled up from lion daddy and, and you know, ferocious uh, uh, lion that I am to then the bear of the mama. So Nehemiah says, listen, you tell the enemy to bring it on. I got dads and grandparents here that are not going to let you through. That's, what ne- that's the strategy Nehemiah has. The strategy God has in the church is that the men rise up and be men. Protect those that are vulnerable. Children are vulnerable. And the enemy, it says in the Scripture that the enemy is, is, is creeping around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Do you know why a lion roars? To separate the weak from the herd. A lion roars to scare. A lion is not going to attack a group of antelope. A lion will attack one antelope. So how is he going to get it to get separated? Well, he roars, and then all the antelope are afraid. So they run off. And the weak ones, the vulnerable ones, are left to the feast of a lion. That's what Satan does. He tries to separate the weak from the herd. And so Nehemiah said, I know how to defeat this dumb lion. What I'll do is I'll put the weak in front of the vulnerable. And then the lion won't come after us. The, enemy, the enemies are all at this point afraid. They're not even, and listen to what happens. The next verse in chapter 4, verse 15, uh, 15 and 16. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, and bows, and coats of, of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were building the wall, it says in verse number 18, uh, it, it talks about this at, at 17 and 18, as you keep reading, it says each of the builders, they would build with one hand, and with the other hand they'd hold a sword. Listen, that, this, this, that little book that I read years ago said this is two-fisted leadership. You do your work, but you're prepared for battle. Listen, I'm, I'm laying a brick, but I got my, left, my right hand on my sword. My left hand will be laying brick, and they still did it in 52 days. It didn't slow the progress down. They were ready to go, and they had families ready to protect the little ones. That's what they set up in this city as they built it. I thought, man, the city of God is built by families. That's what it's built by in the Old Testament. I can't help but just get excited about that. So there's all this crazy opposition that comes, and Nehemiah says, no, we're going to keep going. So then chapter 5, something happens in chapter 5 that I just, ugh, I don't like certain things in the Bible, just be honest. Chapter 5 is one of those things I don't like because we see this great spiritual battle taking place in chapter 4 and we see that the work of God will not be stopped. And how is it not going to be stopped? Because the men of God are going to stand up and be men. Let's go. And then chapter 5, people were taking advantage of each other. So here's what happens. The enemy comes to attack. So Nehemiah says, we're going to protect the vulnerable. Then what happens within the... If the enemy can't stop you from without, he's going to try to stop you from within. So now we've stopped the enemy from coming from outside. So the enemy just says, well, I'm going to be clever, and I'm going to still take from the vulnerable. So there's all this, this stealing from the poor. There's all this stuff going on. People are taking advantage of one another within the people of God. Nehemiah, this is why I love the zeal of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, oh no, we're not doing that. Like, we're not not doing it. And in fact, I'm going to combat it 
At the end of chapter 5, it, sa- it says in verse number 6 of chapter 5, I was very angry when I heard these words. He says, when I heard this was going on, I was angry. And listen, you, you get an angry leader that's a man of God and he gets angry, we're going to have some, there, listen, there's going to be some conflict. And when there's conflict, you've got to know God doesn't lose. Nehemiah says, we're not doing this. So he took counsel, and then he brought these charges against these people. He said, you are, this this is a problem. This is an issue. So he fixes it. And then the end of chapter 5, this greed that showed up at the beginning of chapter 5 is combated by Nehemiah personally with generosity. He then gives to all these people so they can eat. From his own riches, from his own uh, bank account, Nehemiah says, I'm willing to be generous because all that I have belongs to the Lord anyway. And it's not that you think you're, you're stealing from each other and you think you're gaining riches. It's not yours. You don't take it with you. There's no, and if you do take it with you, you're going to get up to heaven. You're going to be like, hey, I brought all this gold. And, the, and then the angel's going to say, great, you brought some asphalt. Awesome. That's what we use to pave the roads up here. You're like, thanks for bringing it. Like, can you, that's so dumb, right? We think we got all this stuff. Nehemiah says, I'm going to be generous. So he is generous at the end of chapter five. Well, then guess what? There's more problems. The enemy now in chapter six tries to persuade Nehemiah. There's so much that happens to a leader of a great move of God. So much that happens. We look in the Old Testament, we look in the New Testament. The people of God get attacked by the enemy, but the man of God that's, that's, that's the head, because Satan knows if he can take down the leader, then the whole organization is going to have problems, right? That's, just, that's what's going to happen. So whenever this happens in chapter 6, listen to what these people do. This, this doesn't even make sense to me. Verse, uh, verses two, verse, listen to verse 2. It says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at this place in, the, in these plains, uh, but they intended to do me harm. Here's what, and in verse five, you can read again where they're, they're inviting him to this thing. It sounds like to me, now I'm, I'm very, I'm not as smart as I want to be, right? But it sounds like to me, as I read this, this chapter, chapter six, over and over again, these, um, these other great world leaders are inviting Nehemiah to a world conference. That's what, that's what they're, hey, come meet with us. We want to discuss some things. Come meet with us so we can, we can understand where everybody is together. Come meet with us in the world so we can talk about what really makes sense. Because then there is an incredible verse in chapter, in chapter 6, verse number 3. Listen to Nehemiah. I love Nehemiah so much. Oh my gosh, I hope I can be a great leader as Nehemiah. In verse uh, 3, And I sent messengers to them. So these guys are inviting him away. Come over here with us and we'll talk about what's going on with the world. <laughs> Verse 3, I sent messengers saying, I'm doing a great work and can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? You know what Nehemiah says? Oh, there's good stuff going on here. Why would I waste my time with you? God's working. I'm not leaving it. You're not going to distract me. There's a great leadership principle here that we are supposed to say no to things that aren't for our good. If something is not good for you, say no to it. If something is going to distract your time away, say no to it. You have the authority to say no whenever something goes on. So there's this 
persuasion attempt, well, what happens at the end of chapter 6? We see the completion of the wall. It gets finished. The enemy's tried now three or four different tactics to stop the work of God, and it is obviously completely ridiculous. Well, then we see this second uh, uh, big chunk in Nehemiah, beginning at chapter 7. This is the new consecration uh, after the wall is finished in Jerusalem. The wall been built, the door's set up, everything's good to go. Um, and then what happens in verse number seven? God writes names down in his book. Man, I love it. I, I feel like I'm saying that every week, and it's great. It's awesome. So there was a, a, these, the, the people were written down in their book, the faithful names of those who had worked and done what God had called them to do. The faithful are now written down in the book. Then we see in chapter eight, uh, that the word takes precedence. So after the work of God uh, is, we see now Ezra reads the law. So Ezra's still alive, right? Ezra didn't die when Nehemiah showed up. Ezra's still there. He gets up and preaches in chapter eight. And when he does, it is, it is a revival type preaching. God, um, revival isn't about rebuilding physical structures. Revival is about rebuilding spiritual lives. And God does that through his word. I, I was, as I was talking to this guy yesterday, the more we talked about God's word, the more fired up we got. The, the, we, we sat in this restaurant yesterday after we moved for what seemed like two days. We sat in this restaurant. This waitress comes by and we've been sitting there talking for an hour. We had no food left. We were done eating. You know, we, she'd come by and refill drinks like a hundred times. And, you know, we, were, we drank three gallons of water sitting there. And as we were, she came by and she said, hey, so I hear you guys talking about like worship or something. And we were like, sure, what's up? You know, and she's like, she's like, well, I go to a church. And so she starts talking and we, we talked to her and um, she said, I just think it's so cool how excited you guys are getting. And I thought, how goofy do we look over here? <laughs> We're sweaty. We got, I mean, just uh, awful. We stink probably, you know, from moving all day and hot. And, and, and she's just like, you guys are getting so excited. It's so fun to watch. And I thought, this is like, I feel a little bit insulted, but also like greatly celebrate. Like, this is awesome, right? This is a moment where I'm like, yes, all right. The more we got into God's word, the more we were talking about his character, and I think we were getting louder without realizing it, right? You know, like, you, my voice elevates, his voice elevates. Next thing you know, we're screaming at each other. It's like, God's holy. He's like, absolutely he is. He's so good. This is amazing. And as we, we get more and more excited about it, and I, I look in, in Ezra chapter 8, and that's what happens, or in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra reads the law, that's what's going on. People are excited and pumped up. They're, they're, they can't wait to see what God does and how he does it. And they're listening to the word of God. And then what happens is there's a great worship service that breaks out. And then there's a festival that takes place. That feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles take, <laughs> takes place again. And as we see, so it's, we see that God brings through his word... He brings this, um, this, this excitement in our heart. I get so excited talking about God's Word, and, and it's, it's probably a problem. I'm not going <laughs> to... Excuse me. It's probably a problem. I'm not going to lie, because I get to where it's hard for me to even control when it's supposed to stop. Like, I just... Wait, you know, we sat there for two hours in this, in this restaurant talking after we ate. So it's probably there two and a half hours. And I should have gone home. I should have gone home an hour earlier, you know, and, but I got so excited. This, whenever this goes on in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah, we see this like God, God's word is shared 
the people get fired up and then they just have a festival. They're like, we're just going to soak in God's Word. Well, then what happens? Chapter 9. Anytime God's Word is shared, anytime God's Word convicts hearts and is, is open and understood, God brings revival and there is always a confession of sins. Always. And, and I will say, in my lunch yesterday, we're talking about how holy God is, how amazing He is. We're looking through places in the Scripture together. We're even like pulling up our phones. I mean, like, let's make sure I got this verse address right. Yeah, it's this one. And as we're doing this, at the, towards the end, we both requested prayer for one another for specific sins in our lives. Both of us. I didn't, even, I didn't even realize this until this morning. I was like, oh my goodness. God's Word was so good and so rich we got convicted of our own sin that didn't things and it, and, and you would, you may even think oh well that's an that's a light sin there's no there's no light sins it's against the heart of God it's rebelling against God's purposes and his plans and his ways and so when we realize it, the, the the more in in tune you become with what God is saying the more you realize how out of tune you were and we begin to say man I, I'm here's an area in my life that I'm struggling with some stress and I know the Bible says don't worry. So when I worry, I'm going against God's word, and that is against a holy God, and he's right. And me saying, me worrying is saying, God, are you sure you're right? And it's like, ooh, that one hurts. That one hurts. I'll be, I'll be honest, I got worried this week about something. And I, I confessed that to this guy yesterday. I said, I got worried about this specific thing. And he said, why would you worry about that? And I'm like, why would you worry about moving? Chill out, man. We're all worried about stuff. Like, come on. And he's like, yeah, that's true. Then we realize we're even, we're even holding each other accountable. Why? Because God's word is knitting our heart together. Nehemiah has got these people here. They see this great move of God. God does something amazing. The word of God is shared. People begin confessing their sins now because they realize we haven't lined up with this. We've got a problem. So they confess their sins in chapter number 9. God's word brought conviction, and that conviction had to be dealt with. And this is a, there's a renewed covenant that takes place in chapter 9 that is um, a, a fresh start. There's something about a fresh start. The walls are built. The city's ready. There's a fresh start. Then chapter 10, we see uh, the people of the covenant. Names are written down. These names written down are names that said, um, we are... We are all in. So if you, the end of Ezra, it's these confessions of sin names, right? And it's like, ugh, these people were the ones who were guilty of this. In chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah, what we find is we find this list of names of people that said, I'm all in to this new covenant that we're going into. This new, listen, we're, we are, revival has happened. I am signing my name. You can guarantee, you can, you can bank on I am committing to this new covenant that God is putting together for us. And so they, they, it lists out kind of what the covenant is in chapter 10. Well, then we look over into verse chapter 11. Now, chapter 11, this is where there's a new charge, at the beginning in chapter 11. This is um, the last, if I'm, if I'm completely honest, so I've read through the book of Nehemiah dozens of times, and these last three chapters, chapter 11, 12, and 13, I've always had a little bit of difficulty grasping it. I've always had difficulty grasping it because I think, well, this is like some list of names again, and, and there's some, but I don't really understand how it, how it flows, how it works. And so I began to do some deeper study for this specific Bible study. So thank you for being here every week because it's making me 
better in God's Word. And so as I was looking through this, I thought, what can I share with this group of this area of Scripture that I'm kind of confused with, honestly. I've been kind of confused with it. Until, as I've been looking through it now, the, the chapter 11 gives us this new charge and this new life. This is where Nehemiah makes a massive, massive move. There is a huge shift that happens in Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, he, uh, we, this is where I even wrote down in my notes. Um, I read by this in my Bible because I don't really see what's happening. He took a census. And the reason he took a census was he was about to ask people to move. Like literally, move their living quarters. Move their businesses move their livelihoods, their relationships. Their all. So he took a census, and one out of every 10 people he sent to live in the new city. So he says, you're now going to live inside the walls of Jerusalem. So he took these people, and he said, I'm going to have you go here and live here. Then it tells us there are some people that volunteered, and it says the Scripture says those people were blessed because they said, I'm willing, and I am able, and I will go. I am going to sacrifice. Because here's what's happened. And and I read through this and I think, oh, cool. People lived in the new city. Then I thought, what did they leave? They all left something. This is a different, they had to move into a different place. It wasn't just they lived right outside the wall and now they moved right inside the wall. That's not what was going on. This is a new city. This is a a new zip code. This is a new everything. This is new, like if you had a business and you moved into the city, your business changed. Everything about your life just changed. When Nehemiah did this, he, he made the statement, because when, when revival comes, and listen to verse number 2 of chapter 11, it says, And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. That's where the people volunteered. They said, I will go and live. I'm going to willingly change everything in my life. I don't want to wait and see if I'm the one of the ten, right? I'm going to go and do this so that I can be a part of what God is doing. What happened is this gives us the principle when revival comes, our homes, our businesses, livelihoods, families, day-to-day communities no longer look the same. When revival comes in your life, none of that looks the same anymore. It's all different, all of it. These people had to change where they lived and how they lived. Why? Because revival came. That was it. God moved in their hearts, and they had to physically, everything changed. It's amazing. Then we see chapter 12. There's a new, um, not only is there a new life, there's a new loyalty. Listen to what happens in chapter 12. Um, priests and Levites are fresh. They, they, they change positions. There's, God places people in leadership. And this nation needed to respect and honor these people that God had put in place. Chapter 12 is a lot about how, how God organized and structured. There is there's a new, fresh awakening. There's a new, fresh leadership. And God, and, and this, and Nehemiah says, we're going to put priority in God's authority. That's what he says. He says we're going to make God's authority and how he's going to line things up. We're going to make this a priority in our life. So he sets these people in leadership, in spiritual leadership over the nation. And when he does that, he says to the people, these people are the ones that are held accountable for your spiritual development. Do you realize, I I believe this without a shadow of a doubt, according to the scripture, I am held at a standard 
for your spiritual health. I am. I'm the pastor of this church, so it is my responsibility for you to grow spiritually. Now, you have an ownership on that, right? And you are going to reap the benefits or the deficits if you choose not to uh, follow into the leadership that God has put uh, the authority over you. I had a pastor one time tell me, God will never put you over what you've not ever come under. Like, if you've not come under leadership, he's not going to give you authority over anything. Like, that's, God's not going to do If you're not going to follow in his authoritative steps, he's not going to, to give you the authority that you're looking for and seeking. You have to follow. A, good, a great leader is a good follower. That's, that's what a great leader is. A great leader is a great follower. I've, I've, I'm following what I truly believe based on convictions and the Word of God, what, what God is leading us to. That's what Nehemiah is saying to these people. He says, listen, these people are going to be placing spiritual authority over you, and they're held at a, at a standard that, that you don't want to be held at because they're responsible not only for their own walk but for your walk and for the way that they are leading you. If I lead somebody astray, you realize Jesus said, if somebody leads this child astray, you might as well tie a stone around their neck and throw them and let them drown. Like, that's what Jesus says with that. So now every child that comes into New Providence, let me tell you what, what, what your pastor's heart is. Every single child that comes in here, I will get down on one knee with that child. I will play and speak and talk to that child because I want that child to recognize that this place is not just some place to come and hang out. This is a, an, an embassy of heaven. That's what this place is. So when you come in here, you're going to meet with the God of glory. And I want to make sure that I don't lead any kid astray because Jesus says, if you lead one of these little ones astray, I would rather see you drown. Like I... There is a serious pressure. This is what Nehemiah is saying. These new priests and Levites that are coming in, they are going to be held at this high standard. And so he puts in this new order for them to live and to enjoy the, the freedom that God's given them under this new leadership. It's powerful, amazing, incredible. Then they dedicate the wall. And then what happens in um, verses between verses 26 and 27? This is where I, I've always been a little confused until I found... Uh, something that I understood a little bit deeper. Between verses 26 and 27, uh, we see the, the, new, the new orders put in place. And then, then it's, it jumps down. In my Bible, there's a little subtitle. It says, Dedication of the Wall. Um, and, but verse, between 26 and 27, there's probably several years between these two verses. And it's, it's when Nehemiah fulfills his promise. He goes back to the king that sent him and of Persia and gives a report because the wall's done. The task is finished. So Nehemiah travels back, goes and does this, and then a couple of years later, comes back. So the reason that's important is it changed the way I understood what happened here. Because I thought, how is it that we set this new order, there's a dedication, and then, and then Nehemiah's mad. I don't understand what happened. Well, it's because Nehemiah went away after he set this new order up. He said, here's what's gonna happen. Here's the new order of what God's doing this. And then he goes, he comes back. As he comes back, they celebrate, and they, um, they, they begin to dedicate the wall, and then they have a, have a worship service at the temple, and it's this great thing. Well, then chapter 13 really gives us what happens when, when Nehemiah comes back, because he, it says in my Bible, again, I've got these little subtitles, it says Nehemiah's final reforms, and I thought, man, these reforms, the ones in chapter 13 are intense, like so much so I feel like, it's sometimes in my life, I feel like as I read chapter 13, if you didn't know Nehemiah, you would think he's just crazy. 
Because he does some things in chapter 13. The walls are, have finally been dedicated, the temple worship putting back in place. So now, chapter 13, what we see is Nehemiah gives these final uh, words of reform. And while he was gone, in between verses 26 and 27 of chapter 12, while he was gone, some things begin to slip away. Okay, So you don't have this strong, bold leader anymore. And so people see the order and they're like, eh, we'll get there, right? Well, we'll they, they, start, they don't like what one of the leaders says, so he does what he wants to do, and the leader's now held to a standard, and this is kind of going up, it's okay, we're fine. Well, what begins to happen is there's some defiling that goes on while Nehemiah is gone. By the time he comes back, um, there's, there's some things that have happened. So one of the things that happened, the sanctuary had been defiled. It had been defiled by the, um, the, the priest had given this other person the ability to come in and kind of junk the place up. So listen to what happens in chapter 13, verse number 8. And I was very angry. This is Nehemiah. And I threw out the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. This is a physical Nehemiah, the leader, comes back, sees what's going on in the sanctuary, begins to haul furniture and chuck it outside. I was hauling furniture yesterday. Listen, you have to be angry to be able to throw it. This is a, there is a physical word of throw. He, he physically picked this stuff up, and, and you can almost imagine at this point, Nehemiah, uh, not, not a super young guy, not super old, but not super young, I mean, picking up uh, uh, some furniture and just flinging it out, and then he gives an order, the next word, he gives an order to clean the house. He says, it's time to clean up. We're cleansing the place. So then they have a cleansing service. Then uh, what happened? What happened next? Then they were messing around on the Sabbath again. They weren't doing Sabbath work. In fact, what was happening is they were coming into the temple on the Sabbath, which they were not supposed to sell things on the Sabbath. They weren't supposed to do that work. Well, the people were coming in. So Nehemiah, crazy guy, the, on the night before the Sabbath, he sets up people all around the building and says, if anybody tries to come in, we ain't letting them in. And they're like, what are you talking about? And they're like, people come to set up to sell stuff. We're not letting it happen. So it says in verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, gave orders they shouldn't be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that, that, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath. And so then the merchants and sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Verse 21, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time on, they didn't come in on the Sabbath. <laughs> then Nehemiah, is like, he's, he literally says, you come in here, I'm beating you up. That's what he said, I'll lay hands on you. That's not an ordination service, lay hands, by the way. That's a, I will physically beat you if you come in here. So what happens next? Then they, they intermarried again. Listen to what happens when they intermarry. This, uh, and again, Nehemiah is gone for all these things. And when they intermarry, he says, so uh, the, the men aren't even speaking the language of Judah anymore. So in verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall never give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did you hear that? Nehemiah beat them, cursed them, and pulled the hair out of their heads. This guy's crazy. I love this guy. I can't physically do this to people, but I just, I look at this, I think, oh my goodness. Then in verse 28, 
there was a, a, another son, another issue that happened. So what did he do? He goes chasing. It says in the last part of verse 28, therefore I chased him. Nehemiah went after guys, and they're running away at this point. It's like this is the crazy guy that threw all the furniture out. It's the crazy guy that, that said he would lay hands on people. They obviously didn't believe him, so he laid hands on people, cursed them, pulled their hair. He was plucking hair out of people's heads. And so now he's chasing people out. He's like, get out of God's house. You don't belong here. This isn't right. He's chasing people down. Uh, this guy is absolutely crazy. He's crazy. But you know what I love? He was crazy because of the holiness of God. All of those actions were because he said, you are not taking this God seriously. And I'm telling you, it's better for you that I pluck the hair out of your head and beat you senseless than to be in the wrong standing with God. That's what, that's what Nehemiah says. He's, he's a passionate guy. I love him. I, I told uh, Deb this morning, I said, you know, I've been praying for years that Nehemiah, that I could have the leadership of Nehemiah. And, and I'm kind of crazy. Like I am, I'm kind of crazy. And, but I don't want to just be known for being crazy. I want to be known for respecting the holiness of this great God so much that I say, it's, it, in this house, we're not allowing it. We're not allowing things that are defiling. We're not allowing things that are not going to align with who he is. I'm not going to allow, not on my watch. We're not going to allow, how crazy will I go? I don't know. Don't push me. Like, you know what I'm saying? I, the more I read this book, the scarier I become because I'm like, this is for real something amazing. I want to read one more verse to you. Um, and then we will close this morning. Uh, in the book of uh, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. I, I like how all, the Old Testament points to the New Testament. The New Testament points back to the Old Testament. Um, and as I, as I look through that, there's a, there's a moment. So I told you in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse number 3, whenever the persuasion was coming, they said, come down to us and we will talk about some things that make sense. And Nehemiah said, I'm, I'm doing a great work. I'm not going to stop. We're going to see what God does. I look over in Matthew chapter 27, verse number 42. Verse number 40, 42 of Matthew 27. Jesus was on the cross, right? So the phrase is said by those sitting down below him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. If he is, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, people said, come down to us and let's, let's, let's talk some things out. I can imagine in Jesus' brilliant mind, him thinking, I'm doing a great work here. I'm not going to waste my time with you. I'm not going to waste my time with the world. I'm doing a great work. You know, I hope and pray that we see that great work in our lives every day. I hope and pray that we have the passion and the zeal of Nehemiah. And, and remember, Nehemiah was not a crazy guy. He was a guy that the king respected someone. He was probably the most liked guy in the kingdom of Persia. He shows up with this heart of zeal for the Lord, and it gets more and more, uh, it gets brighter and brighter, more and more uh, fervent, more and more powerful as, as he gets closer and closer to God. I hope and pray we can 
become more and more passionate for the holiness of who God is. I love the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Next week, we jump into the book of Esther. The book of Esther kind of ends the historical books in the Old Testament, and then we'll see some some really cool things uh, take place from there. Uh, Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being who you are, for loving us, for caring for us, for giving us your word. God, I pray that um, the passion and zeal of Nehemiah for the holiness of God would become our passion and zeal for the holiness of God. Lord, let us lead well. Let us organize well. Lord, let us stand up to the enemy well. Let us go when you say to go. Let us work when you tell us to work. Let us leave when you tell us to leave. Let us be faithful. Lord, Nehemiah was a faithful servant who was a strong, bold leader. I pray we would have more faithful servants and more strong, bold leaders so that we can see great revival come and that we can always respect and revere your holiness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.